You're listening to a Discourse ZA production. I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Small Print, where we unpack issues facing democracy to equip people to be more have more agency over their own democratic prospects as citizens and as consumers. And today I've got with me Debisi Araba, who is a very well-renowned economist. And I always like to start the show by asking you, Debisi, to please introduce yourself the way you would like to be introduced. Sure. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Bronwyn. And it's a pleasure being here. Uh, my name is Debisi Araba. I'm a member of the Malabo Montpellier panel. Um, most recently, I was the Africa, um, well, managing director of the uh, Africa Green Revolution Forum, uh, focused on convening multiple uh, stakeholders on fostering inclusive agriculture transformation on the continent. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that. And a lot of your work is involved with dealing with policy leaders and with, with government officials. Am I correct in that? Who, who do you generally engage with in your day-to-day -day business? Wow, that's, that's a simple and yet complicated <laughs> question. Um, I, I would say I, 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 in my day-to-day, -day, I, I, I probably interact with most, people, most, most sectors, um, private entrepreneurs, um, multilateral development banks, um, bilateral uh, institutions, uh, research institutions, um, and also civil society and advocacy organizations. And a lot of your work has focused on the potential of the African agriculture sector. Maybe you can just describe in a few words or a few short sentences what you think the, the opportunity is in that space for the continent at large. Wow. So I'm, I'm, I'm getting to sell <laughs> agriculture. Well, okay, so here's the thing. We have, we have the youngest continent uh, in the world. Um, but also Africa, I, I would say Africa holds promise. Um, for the past few decades, we've, we've had, globally speaking, in, in the agri-food sector, we've had the focus on um, increasing productivity for calorific content. Now we're shifting towards nutrition and health. And I think as, this, as we're experiencing this paradigm shift, um, African entrepreneurs and governments, of course, um, can take advantage of this new wave to ensure that we maximize this opportunity to not, not just enjoy, ensure that Africa, Africans can feed themselves, but are also a critical driver for feeding the rest of the world. Why? Because we have opportunities for you know, creating these market creating innovations that I hope we will touch on. Um, we have the knowledge uh, of what works in terms of designing macroeconomic policies we have the opportunities, of course, um, again, for growing markets that are still very juvenile, um, both internally within the continent and uh, around the world. So I think agriculture holds a critical uh, position in determining the economic future of the continent. Of course, we don't want the entire continent to be agrarian, but we certainly want the agriculture sector to stimulate that wider economic growth because you need the economic, you need that agrarian base you know, on which you build uh, everything else. I love what you're saying there about the focus on the real economy. And I think that that is something that we've really struggled with over, over the last few years. And that we've seen the global economy really sort of fracturing between the real economy and the, and the sort of financialized, virtualized economy. And a lot of investment attention, a lot of political attention has gone into supporting that financialized, virtualized economy. But at some point, those sort of two worlds have to come back together. Because without a strong real economy based on the real needs, things like food security and energy 
security and the stuff that human beings and societies actually need to survive, we're definitely going to see sort of a, a, a much more fragile global economy if it's focused purely on the financialized, virtualized side and not enough on the real side. So I think there's a big opportunity there. And I think it's also the perfect time to be talking about that, particularly as we start to see even the world's biggest tech companies sort of turning their attention back to the real world. Everything from sort of Bill Gates buying up farmland to Elon Musk getting involved in energy provision. I think there's an interesting sort of tipping point that we're seeing there. And if Africa is able to position itself once again to take advantage of the natural resource bounty our continent has, that becomes a really huge opportunity, not just for us locally, but also internationally. But since I do like to stir the pot a little bit, I wanted to ask you about something that I've started picking up quite a lot in my work, because I work in the futures space and I talk to quite a lot of the sort of the economic sort of futures thinking people, particularly coming out of Europe. And one of the conversations that I'm hearing quite a lot that has maybe raised my eyebrows slightly is that a lot of the, the European economists who are talking about things like degrowth at the moment are saying that Africa should not be exporting primary resources to Europe, that Africa should be developing its own economy and that this, the economies really should be separated. I have questions about that because surely we do want external money to fund our internal growth. So I'm just putting that out there as a conversation that is being had from a very European perspective. What are your thoughts on that from, from the African perspective? Well, I'm with you, uh, Robin. And I think it's, it's, time, it's time for us to have the real conversations on what it would take for African economies to grow exponentially, right? Um, most recently, I, I read an op-ed in um, Project Syndicate by the chief economist of uh, Afrix and Bank where he was talking about the, 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 the tax that is imposed on, on African economies through the credit rating system, where these implicit risks are imposed on African economies. And so, you know, you, you have, I, I don't know if, if I think the best performing economy has somewhere around the B range. And of course that has implications on access to global financial markets. We're not saying, you know, I, I, we need the funds. There are global, there's, there's, there's a quantum of, of financing available around the world. The problem is African economies, when they try to access that financing, it comes at a more expensive, it's, it's more expensive to access global financing, right? So first of all, we need to figure out what we need to do to improve the credit rating system, the rating systems, the financial mechanisms to ensure that um, African businesses and ideas can tap affordable financing, longer term financing. So it also you know, makes me happy that uh, I think in the next few days or starting today in, in uh, Paris, um, African, some Af African heads of states uh, will be meeting with uh, the French president uh, and a few other um, heads of financial institutions to chart a course for affordable uh, financing. You know, I don't, I, I don't buy into the, the myth that African economies are basket cases that always need to be bailed out. The problem is there is a system that's already rigged against you know, global competitiveness. And so let's address that. Now, the other side of things is the bankability uh, and the value proposition of, of African economies. I think, you know, take, take Nigeria, take Kenya. These are diversifying you know, uh, economies as much as people like to think they are largely agrarian, I say no. I mean, you think of Nigerian, you know, when, when the, the GDP was rebased a, a few years ago and I hear it's going to be 
done so, they're going to do another rebasing exercise uh, shortly. Look at the Nigerian economy and look at how diverse it is. The problem is not enough investments coming in, you know, to, 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 to fuel those, those ideas. You've got fintechs, you've got Nollywood, you've got the entertainment industry. I mean, these are sectors capable of, you know, being multi-billion dollar um, subsectors on the continent. So if we can fix the global financial mechanisms that improves the credit rating and by extension um, makes uh, access to global financial services more affordable, uh, longer term, then you'll start to see, you know, the flow, I think, the, an increased flow in, in uh, financing globally. Of course, Africans, of course, need to invest more in their domestic economies. Um, we need to invest more in domestic savings. But again, it's sort of a, a chicken and egg, you know, when, when you have economies with uh, double digit inflation rates, that, that is a disincentive to save. <laughs> so you need to fix the macroeconomic fundamentals and this is where public policy comes into play. So governments need to step up to the plate. You know, it's not about um, fetishizing um, entrepreneurs or entrepreneurship. You know, we, you have a role for private entrepreneurs, but you also have the role for public policy. And governments need to step up to the plate to ensure that they take the heat of, of um, double digit inflation or even um, macro, macroeconomic uncertainties. So stabilize the markets create uh, incentives for investors, both domestic and foreign, to come into these sectors and create that enabling environment. And I think that that should be the primary role of governments. And of course, the cardinal rule, especially when we think of the agri-food sector, don't distort markets. Because what you find is governments going in and trying to intervene in market failure spaces and trying to compete with the private sector, either competing or even distorting you know, complete sectors, whether in the input sector, in logistics, in manufacturing, et cetera. I think governments need to have more faith in the private sector um, and create that enabling environment uh, for them. I, I think, you know, you're starting to see that flow. You know, you're starting to see both domestic and I, I think not just the flow of uh, foreign investments coming into Africa, but you're also seeing the domestic investments. So whether it's venture capitalists, you know, homegrown venture capitalists like uh, First Check, uh, Africa Fund, etc. So you're starting to see Africans investing in Africa and not just domestic, as in within the, the, the borders of their own countries. They're investing in other African countries. So we're starting to see that and it's all early stages and it's exciting. But for me, I think my, my biggest um, plea is to governments. You know, governments need to stabilize uh, the macroeconomic fundamentals. You really need to ensure that the environment is conducive, it's safe um, for, for investors to come in and, and, and pitch their tents for the long term. Yeah, exactly. That policy certainty is so important, both for domestic growth and for plugging into the, to the global economy. And those are essentially the two challenges we have. We want to build a resilient African economy, like across the continent and domestically, whatever country you're involved with. We have to be having that goal of having an independent Africa. We have a strong consumer base and a strong supply sector and an internal economy, not just an economy that's dependent on the global market. 
But at the same time, in order to do that, we really do need the money from the rest of the world. In fact, a lot of the money in the rest of the world has come from Africa at some point. So it would be kind of nice to get some of that back, right? <laughs> but that, that's essentially the sort of challenge. But in order to do both those things, the big gap that I definitely see from an economic perspective, from a policy perspective, is that sort of credibility piece, that, that, that faith in strong institutions that are going to uphold the rule of law, both for in international investors and for local investors. Without that certainty, you're unable to plan ahead. So what are some of the policies you think that governments could be putting in place to start to give some of that certainty and that confidence to both domestic and external investors to get them to actually put their money into the continent rather than holding back? Because it's such a good opportunity to do that right now. The rest of the world is also looking quite uncertain. So the sort of the, the barrier to entry, that's the, the sort of nicer thing that has come out over the last couple of years is that as the, the rest of the world becomes more uncertain, Africa has a chance to prove itself as a destination, a viable alternative. But what is missing? What, what are some of the policies you would like to see coming out of the African Union and out of all, all the governments across the continent in order to start building that stable foundation that growth can, can follow upon? Yeah, thanks, thanks, Bronwyn. Now, um, so global GDP is, I think, well, as of last year, it was approaching $90, $90 trillion. I don't know what, what impact the, um, the global pandemic has had, but we can assume, we can safely assume it's at least at $80 trillion. Now the agri-food sector globally is about $8 trillion. That's 10% of global GDP. So it's a huge market. Um, specifically about what, what governments can do. I mean, we know that global capital is chasing or seeking, desperately seeking commercial returns. And the growth potential in Africa, because again, you think of the youth population, it's a relatively young continent, growing markets. But if the African economies grow in real sense, not, not by you know, increasing inequality, again, it's not just about GDP. You really want this rising tide to lift as many boats as possible. If you have a growing middle class, then consumption increases consumption increases, then Africa becomes a consuming, not just a producing, but also a consuming market. So it's a huge market, there's a huge market potential um, on the continent. Uh, we're already seeing that in some subsectors, you know, entertainment sector, et cetera, and fintechs, et cetera. But to ensure that we spread the prosperity narrative across multiple subsectors, we need to ensure as, as governments, anyway, we need to ensure, you, you've talked about it, enforcing the rule of law, protecting contracts. You know, I think if, if an investor comes in with, with the confidence that whatever is agreed will be protected by law, then there is confidence to do more, to bring in more funds, bring on more partners, invest in more countries, um, or even Africans to invest in other African countries. So we need to protect contracts. We need to enforce the rule of law, uh, but also in, in, in terms of national strategies in, in the agri-food sector, we need to reduce the volatility in, in what governments do administration to administration. There needs to be some overall goal that governments can then tweak within means, um, um, say every four to five years or something. Uh, that way the, you, you reduce the uncertainty because it does, it does I mean, if you, if you engage with um, investors who invest in multiple countries in Africa, and I don't even think it's just Africa, but around the world, there is, uh, you know, your anxiety starts to increase with the election, you know, season. 
because you never know like what's going to happen if there's a change in administration if there's a change in administration are you going to pitch from you know a complete you know do a complete 180 on on certain issues take nigeria for example uh, between 2012 and 2015 the government invested heavily in digitizing the input subsidy system with the hope that they were going to build a virtual bank um, include increase uh, financial um, inclusion for millions of unbanked people um, and create the fundamentals for a credit system uh, for smallholder farmers um, in 2015 a new government came in and that policy i wouldn't say it was abandoned but it was paused and with that came the shocks that you know reverberated further down the chain and the country hasn't recovered from that you know, nigeria at, at the, i would say at 2014 2015 was probably the most innovative country as far as inputs payments in the agri-food sector was concerned globally and we went from there to not having the database anymore so governments needing to ensure that you you're creating when you say you know agriculture transformation is a public sector enabled private sector led process you need to imbibe that culture of enabling environment it doesn't matter which political party you know leads the country i think by and large everyone wants the agri food sector to grow so there must be some broad agreement on what will be needed whether it's you're focusing on um, increasing or improving the, the affordability of access to finance, or uh, you're stabilizing the inputs markets or reducing the volatility in the commodities markets, or you're trying to encourage more uh, processing uh, to increase the value addition. Because again, you know, when we talk, when we, when, when, we, when we want transformation, you really want to see a lot of people cycle out of primary production and move higher up the value chain. So that commitment to do that is an overall objective. How the strategies you adopt could be different, right? So I think the overall objective shouldn't change. Um, and, and, and this is what the entrepreneurs, you know, sort of pay attention to. If, if objectives change, then, you know, you, int you introduce the, the uncertainty and the hesitancy uh, in capital. And of course, capital like know-how uh, sort of the ability to get things done can be attracted and can be scared off. So what you don't want to do is scare off capital. You don't want to scare off know-how. You want that innovative capacity from, from the private sector to come into your country. You want to grow your economy. You want to make your agri-food sector, you know, highly competitive. Um, and I think one other thing that African economies could do, and I've discussed this with my, 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 my friend Ronak, is not to sound uh, too provocative, but I think less kumbaya and more competitiveness between countries. Why? The, a lot of countries produce ubiquitous goods because they're mostly, you know, commodities. You're not, you're not seeing that many um, higher value products in the agri-food sector. So countries need to do more um, moving higher up the value chain, but also competing amongst themselves. You know, everyone, everyone cannot, uh, you know, we, we, can't, we can't reduce ourselves to the lowest level of productivity, you know. So if it's take West Africa with rice, 
you know, I want to see Nigeria competing with Cote d'Ivoire. You know, I want to see Togo and Benin competing, you know, to be the supplier to the sub-region rather than saying, oh, you know, we're comfortable with just being self-sustaining and we produce just enough for our local population. That's not the, the, the aim of the game, you know, the aim of the game is competitiveness, you know, you need to dominate the market. Um, and so with the advent of the Africa Continental Free Trade uh, Agreement, I'm hoping that African economies start to specialize, diversify and specialize in their areas of, they can choose the areas, but they choose the areas of, of, of competitiveness and competence. So whether if they want to be uh, distribution hubs, both for the continent, logistics and distribution hubs for the continent or for the world, um, if they want to be processing hubs, production hubs, whatever you choose, be the best at it. You know, don't be mediocre. I think mediocre is no longer enough, you know, and we cannot continue to indulge mediocrity uh, at any point of the agri-food chain, you know. We have the potential uh, to be great. And so we need to just maximize the opportunities we have now. Time is not on our side. You know, we're in a race, not, 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 not just again, uh, not, not, not just to be self-sustaining, but we're competing with the rest of the world. I just mentioned rice. You know, any rice farmer anywhere on the continent of Africa isn't necessarily competing with the farmer from the next village or the next country. They're competing with the rest of the world. You're competing with the best from Thailand, Vietnam, uh, India, you know, Indonesia. So you need to ensure that you are investing in the, in the processes, systems, technologies that ensure that you can be globally competitive. And I think that's the gold standard and we can do it. You know, we've seen other countries do it and you know, we, we can do it. It's, it's the potential is within us, but you don't eat potential. You know, we need to realize the potential. Yeah, got to move beyond a sort of subsistence mindset towards a, a growth oriented mindset, which, which again, I'm coming back to it, is a source of competitive advantage at the moment because so much of the world is moving away from growth as an idea towards more conservation and more protection. And there's many reasons for that. So I did want to get into that a little bit with you in that there do seem to be some sort of divergence across the economic and policy sphere at the moment as to whether growth is even a, an altruistic objective for humanity at large. Of course, coming from Africa where we see so much need, I think growth is absolutely essential. But I mean, we are more biased in that regard compared to say a lot of Europe and a lot, a lot of the sort of more developed parts of America that are talking about sustainability as being the primary sort of objective we should be looking at. Now, I would like to be more optimistic and say that there could be ways for us to have both sustainability and growth. But what are your comments on that, on that sort of emerging policy challenge? Because I think that Africa is going to be put in the hot seat quite a lot going forward as the African continent gets its turn for development, which is following after China and after India which have faced a lot of criticism for growth, but without sustainability. What are your thoughts on that? And how do we avoid that as a continent? Because not only do we have the most potential, we also have the most potential to be negatively affected by things like environmental change at the moment. Our continent is very much in that firing line too. So how do we, how do we balance the issues of sustainability and growth? Because that's going to require serious political leadership across the continent. Yes, Bronwyn, um, this is, there, there are no easy answers here. 
Um, I mean, just take climate change as is one of one of these threats. You know, it's an existential threat that 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 affects that that will affect not just Africa or Africans, but everyone around the world. Um, and we know that adaptation right now, the adaptation gap, financing gap, is somewhere between seven to fifteen billion dollars a year. You know, in Africa alone, infrastructure gap is somewhere around hundred billion each year. Um, so we are underfunding our adaptation to what's already ongoing, the, the, the climate change, but we're woefully underfunding mitigation. This is our ability to contribute uh, or the propensity to contribute to greenhouse gas emissions. Um, the good thing about policy, broadly speaking, is it's not a silver bullet. You know, as a policy entrepreneur, if you, if you, if you could forgive me to call, you know, give this label, is a policy entrepreneur doesn't provide one plan, one solution. A policy entrepreneur provides a suite of options, you know, with trade-offs. And I think people need to appreciate that with each option comes trade-offs. There is no, you know, spotless option. Either way, there's this give and take. Um, in, in the agri-food sector, we certainly have technology systems and processes that produce, um, uh, promote um, the reduction in the pr production of greenhouse gases, as well as um, adapting to a climate change, uh, increasing productivity. We call these climate smart agriculture. And we have the triple win, um, where you're reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions, you're adapting to climate change and also increasing productivity. The challenge is it's context specific. So what is climate smart in one place is not necessarily climate smart everywhere. Um, and with that comes a cost. So you can't, but because it's not, it's not one, one option to be adopted across the entire continent or entire country, that means you're increasing the cost of deploying this specific uh, system practice technology in the context. So we need investments. So, I, I mean, I, I remember in the, I think in his outgoing speech, the former head of OECD talked about putting a big fat price on carbon. I think that's one way to go. You know, if we can put a penalty, sort of a, a Pigouvian tax, so to speak, on, 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 um, on, on carbon, then you create the financial markets or the incentives um, to, to crowd in investments to ensure that certain sectors of the economy can adapt to climate change. Now, what China and India have done over the last decade plus, um, I think is rational. You have to see it from their perspective. You know, in the lead up to uh, the, the COP in Paris a few years back, there was the reluctance of developing countries or countries that were emerging to say, you know, why should we uh, pay the penalty, you know, for, uh, centuries <laughs> of, of pollution by other countries that have now, you know, evolved into their sort of fourth industrial revolution. They've gone through the industrialization and some have even deindustrialized, like the United Kingdom. You know, why should they then pay the penalty uh, for trying to grow their economies? And so we, we're seeing uh, the emergence of new greener technologies. They're there, but they're currently not necessarily overall as competitive as conventional technologies. But we are seeing the growth. We're seeing the growth in 
green energy generation, whether it's wind, solar, uh, wave, uh, geothermal, etc. But someone's got to pay. Um, and to ask countries, to ask emerging economies to pay a, a penalty, it's like you're, 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 you're shackling them in, in, a, <laughs> in this race. You're asking people to, to you know, sort of, sort of box with one hand tied behind their back. Why? Um, so countries are going to have to, again, I, I am curious to, to see what, what will emerge from the negotiation process for the upcoming COP. Um, believe it's going to happen in, in the United Kingdom in Glasgow. Um, but what, what are the terms of the negotiations? You know, will uh, the more industrialized countries provide more affordable financing for the emerging economies or will the burden be placed on the emerging economies? And in that, in that case, what's the, what's the incentive for them to do this? You know, to willfully uh, limit the, the transition, the energy transition or the industrialization pace. Uh, most recently, we, we saw in the news that Germany um, have resisted um, uh, calls to transit out of coal. I think they've set the date as 20, 2038, you know, and they don't want to bring that date any sooner. So they, and as much as Germany touts, you know, being this bastion of green energy with the wind farms and solar, they're still reluctant, you know, to let go of, of coal um, as, as a supplier of uh, baseload. So imagine countries like, say, Nigeria, where, you know, it's com completely under, underpowered, um, that they're just building this base load capacity. What do you want them to do? You want Nigeria to proliferate the country and, and solar? If that's the basis of the transition, then who's going to pay for it? Um, I, don't, I don't think there are any easy answers. Um, countries have used uh, diplomacy as either carrots and sticks in the past. Um, and I think all tools should be at the disposal of countries, especially African countries as they negotiate this, this transition. Um, no one should be coerced uh, into taking decisions or options that are not in their strategic interests. But at the same time, we need to recognize that we are citizens of a global community. So everything we do uh, can either contribute or reduce uh, the production of greenhouse gases. It's, it's this sort of multiplicity of options that we need to uh, mine carefully and successfully and pick the options that ensure that, you know, African economies can, or emerging economies in, in, in general, uh, can grow and remain competitive. But at the same time, we're not exacerbating uh, any negative, you know, or putting any negative environmental consequences on the earth. Uh, on the, on the earth. You know, in, in agriculture, we talk of promoting agrobiodiversity, and we have all these systems now. We have conservation agriculture. Um, we have the practices. The practices just need to be couched in a affordable and competitive value proposition. It's not just about saying you're going to reduce greenhouse gases or you're going to um, promote um, you know, soil health. We have 10 billion people to feed by 2050, you know, by hook or crook, we're going to have to figure out a way. I mean, I suppose Elon Musk, uh, should we call him a fam famous son of South Africa, you know, is, is leading the charge to, 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 to take the first wave of uh, colonists to Mars. But that's, not a, <laughs> that's more of a hope than a strategy uh, for humanity. So we need to ensure that the earth can 
provide healthy, safe, nutritious food, you know, for 10 billion people by 2050 in a way that we're not um, damaging the environment. So I, I have faith in science. You know, I'm a scientist. Um, I have faith in new technologies that will come up to increase uh, the productivity, improve yields, uh, and reduce this burden. You know, we have cleaner sources of energy now, um, whether it's solar powered, you know, solar powered irrigation, uh, solar powered um, um, mini mechanization tools, uh, solar powered refrigeration systems. So we, we, we have this transition happening. We just need to ensure that the financing that is going into the R&D, the research and development sort of systems, um, increases more avenues, gives us our best shot. Exactly. No, I, I do definitely agree with your, your opinion there that, that I'm a tech optimist. Sometimes I'm a bit of a human pessimist based on what's going on in the world. But I think you make a very good point there and that savvy African leaders negotiating as a block with the rest of the world when it comes to sort of global challenges like carbon emissions caps or every, all of the rest of it should be using it as a bargaining chip to get more investment from the older nations who have extracted more than their fair share of their carbon debt, you know, to humanity, all the rest of it, rather than being negotiating from not from a position of power and ending up having, actually having to pay the bill for other people's lunch. I mean, the analogy I like to use is like sort of, you know, the West has sort of eaten, eaten the dinner and eaten the dessert. And they've kind of like realized there's one chocolate left in the bowl. And they're like, oh, let's share it. And you're like, oh, wait a minute. You know, no, we didn't even have any of the, we didn't even have any of the main course, you know. So we shouldn't be sort of coming at it as, as sort of beggars to the table, but rather from a position of strength saying we're willing to, to work on this global challenge, but you actually need us to participate and as such you've got to support us so you've got to finance it but we're going to do the work i mean the catch of course is that africa will pay the price no matter what happens because this is where the world's general population is coming from but i think that that just makes it more important and i know that ronak has spoken about it and felina too you've also had on the show and said that africa has to negotiate as a block when it comes to the rest of the world if you want to come from a position of strength rather than a position of you know, like submitting to the will of other stronger, bigger voices in the room. And that brings me to another sort of interesting point, the sort of the, the contrast and the, the, the desire or the, the requirement for both conflict and collaboration if we want to take growth seriously. You alluded to this earlier, that like African countries should be competing amongst themselves. So they can become more efficient so that we can add more value, have stronger, unique selling propositions and have a, have a greater story to sell. But at the same time, there's an argument for collaboration. Like whether you're looking at this from a biological evolutionary perspective or from a social evolutionary perspective, you kind of have to get those two things going. There has to be healthy competition so that the strongest ideas do survive. The best ideas get the support. But at the same time, there has to be some sort of collaboration so that you don't end up being exploited against outsiders. And that brings me to the question that I wanted to speak to you about. I'm not sure how involved with this you are or what your opinion is, but it is something that's come out from quite a lot of these conversations we've had on the small print relating to Africa is the choice of external partners and how we negotiate with them. So the sort of climate targets is one thing, Africa versus the rest of the world. The other one is coming back to funding because obviously we do require investments. And unfortunately, we don't have enough onshore quite yet. Yes, we're going to build a, a fantastic economy. I have no doubt about that. But if we want to do that quickly, we need the support of outside interests. 
And there are various different offers on the table that all come, as you mentioned, with a different set of trade-offs. You've kind of got sort of China's debt offer on the table. So they prepared to put a lot of investment into our continent in exchange for you know, offering us debt, which has to be repaid one way or another. At the same time, you've got India that's also making some very interesting sort of investment moves into the continent, but I'm not sure how equitable they are or who really wins in those deals, because with most trades, there's someone that perhaps gains a little more than someone else. And then, of course, you've got your sort of older trade agreements with the more sort of classic Western trading partners, which are up for renegotiation post-Brexit and in the new Biden administration. And you've kind of got those three different offers on the table as to who to partner with. So the China offer, the India offer, and let's just call it the West offer at the moment, just to sort of oversimplify, but also just to give the conversation some sort of structure. What are your views on those offers? What should Africa be doing? Who should we be negotiating with? And what do we need to be concerned about so that we don't end up you know, having more value leave the continent rather than more remain or come back to Africa, which is really what we all want. We need more value that has left the continents to come back, both in terms of human capital and capital capital. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Brahman. Um, with you, that uh, this is an interesting proposition for African economies. But I think one thing we should be clear about is this is not a new scramble for Africa. This is a scramble for gains, commercial return on capital. Now, if, if that's the proposition or that's the paradigm or the, or the lens through which we're viewing this, then African economies or Africans need to ensure that the continent isn't the place where things happen to us. We make things happen. So it's not about what China's, you know, people, people, people are so curious, like what is China's strategy for Africa? What's India's strategy for Africa? What's the EU strategy for Africa? What's the US strategy for, but what's the, what's the African strategy for the US? What's the African strategy for the EU? Um, and I think, you know, we need more of these pan, pan continental, pan African uh, institutions that enable us to frame negotiation um, and engagements uh, collaborative, you know, I, I believe in Ubuntu, you know, I am because we are. So there is something that connects us all as a, as a continent. Now, taking trade, for example, we have the Continental Free Trade um, Agreement area. Uh, so FCFTA is a framework through which the continent can engage, you know, with other trading blocks uh, around the world. And this is a test, to test for how uh, negotiations will happen. I think you know, I, I have been slightly, you know, curious observing uh, a few countries. I mean, take the United Kingdom post-Brexit, you know, has been on a sprint around the world, especially in the Commonwealth, amongst Commonwealth countries, most of uh, which are African, of course, uh, in, in setting up trade, bi bilateral trade deals. And I think these bilateral trade deals, I don't believe are in the spirit of the AFCFTA. Because what it does is it, it balkanizes and separates um, uh, African countries. It doesn't bind us together. There needs to be a renegotiation. And I think there is never a time to say, oh, because you've, you've signed an agreement, you cannot back out or renew uh, the terms of your engagement. There's always room to renegotiate. And it's in, uh, I think the, the hardest bit will be, you know, people like Juan Kelly Mene, the Secretary General of AFCFTA, in selling that vision of why African countries need to negotiate as a bloc rather than individually. 
And you've seen the United States also negotiating with Kenya most recently um, with trade deals. I think African countries would, would do best in deploying game theory here. You know, this is not about playing um, external partners off of a fellow African country. It's about African countries coming together, uniting and banding together to ensure they improve the terms of the deal and the outcomes, the long-term outcomes. Um, again, you know, I touched on you know, the competitiveness. I think in my discussions with Ronak, I, I used a, a, a more provocative terms to define how African countries um, could compete. I, and I used the, 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 the phrase, you know, we need to go to war, trade war with each other. Um, we need to understand that we can't all produce the same thing. You know, if you increase ubiquity of a product, you reduce the intrinsic value. Right, so whatever that product is, the product, service, etc., what you want to do is maximize the the potential growth of any uh, of these subsectors. So whether it's uh, logistics, transportation, processing, um, production, um, export, whatever it is, as long as you can, you have a, a com competitive advantage over another country, then another it frees up that country to focus on other aspects of the value chain. Everybody can't export everything. Everyone can't produce the same thing. You know, we all can't process the same thing. You know, that, that is defeatist in the spirit, I think, of global competitiveness. Now, um, on, 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 how, on, on how Africans should, should, should engage with the these trade blocks like the United States, the EU, United Kingdom now, I suppose, uh, China, India. Um, it's, it's, it's not simple, but it needs to go through the framework of the FCFTA. They need to understand, economists need to understand, this is not the time to engage, to break away from the pack. There is strength in numbers because there is diversity in our unity. And that diversity increases the intrinsic value of your negotiation bargaining. You know, they say in, in negotiation, before you go into any negotiation, you should have a BATNA, the best alternative to a negotiated agreement. If you don't have a strong BATNA, then you, you are the weaker party in, in the negotiation. But if African countries come together, they not just diversify the options. Now, it's not just one potential trading partner, it's the world, they're trading with the world. So if the United Kingdom doesn't give you favorable terms, you can seek other, other markets, both for import and export. Because again, it's not just about Af what Africa sells to the world. It's what we also purchase. Because that's what a global economy should look like. You know, we sell, we buy. <laughs> and the, the way, the way this, this, this should work is, you know, increase your BATNA. The AFCFTA is the best shot for African economies to increase their BATNA in um, any global negotiation you know, round with any economic bloc. So it, it would be in our self-interest to do this. United diversity is a great way to put it. So I think, I think that's that you really do sort of nail it there, where you're saying we've got to have more competitive 
African economy competing with each other so we can create strength. So you can build up resistance and get those sort of economic antibodies going. But at the same time, when it's Africa looking out at the rest of the world, we have to be more united. I think that perhaps South Africa has been quite guilty in not being a great partner as one of the, the bigger economies on the continent with the rest of Africa. So the sort of the South African exceptionalism is I think that is something I do like to mention in these conversations about Africa at large. I'm not sure if you have a comment on that, but I won't, I won't put you on the spot on that. Oh, no, it's fine. I'm, I'm Nigerian, <laughs> so I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very well familiar with, with the national exceptionalism. I think in, in, in West Africa, you know, you, 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 I don't want to say the average Nigerian, because I, as a Nigerian, I have my biases. And I would say, you know, there is the bias of feeling oh, the world revolves around Nigeria, or at least the economy of West Africa or the continent you know, revolves around Nigeria, people would say things like, oh, if, if Nigeria sneezes, Africa catches a cold and things like that. I think, look, the truth is, yes, we have the political borders, but there is so much more value that, you know, the Nigeria, the big, the bigger economies on the continent, South Africa, Nigeria, Morocco, Egypt, Kenya, um, you know, can, can maximize both as what they've already developed internally, but also because of what is available across the continent. You know, one of the things I, I, I tell people is, you know, why, why I mean, we, we're seeing sort of the growth of uh, fintechs and, you know, in the software industry now, you have emerging startups across the continent of Africa that are globally competitive, but we need to invest in heavy industries. We need to invest in shipping, we need to invest in rail, in road. I mean, wouldn't it be great? Yes, I know it's a technological sort of hill that we need to surmount, but if we get over the barriers of logistics and transportation internally across the continent, that would be something because we open up so many more markets. Imagine if we had you know, logistics and transportation networks in and out of the DRC, in and out of Sudan, you know, the more landlocked countries, Ethiopia, Tanzania, you know, if we, if we connect the entire continent, this is not just about a, a rail or road from Cape to coast or Cape to Cairo. No, this is about connecting the entire continent. This is the basis for the, the European Union. And it's one of the reasons why the EU works right now, because there's the logistics of connecting everyone. We need to connect the continent. The continent, I mean, yes, we, we're, we're one continent bound, but we don't, we don't have the internal um, logistics networks um, on the continent. We need to do more of that. You know, I, I certainly want to see South Africa doing more with Botswana, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Namibia, you know, Malawi, and then just keep going north. Um, and Kenya going further south. Nigeria spreading east and west and north, you know, Morocco going south and, 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 you know, east and Egypt going south and, you know, connect the entire country, you know? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, like that's, that's where it is exciting when you see what China's done over the last few decades. I mean, despite various sort of, sort of eyebrow raising political policies, have been very successful about building the real economy first, understanding that that foundation is much more lasting and creates much deeper, richer economies than focusing purely on technology. And I think that that is something that I'm slightly concerned about when it comes to the sort of policy that I see our politicians in South Africa pushing and all the rest of it, where they focus on the 4IR technologies, which are very exciting and actually quite easy to adopt. 
that they create much more superficial economics. And unfortunately, a lot of the technologies that are, they are promoting, these are consolidating technologies. Like all these four IR technologies are technologies that are really designed to concentrate wealth into as few hands as possible. That's how the platform economy works. And it's fantastic work if you can get it. I'm not judging any, any successful capitalists out there. But from a political perspective, in a, in a continent that already struggles with inequality, both domestically and internationally, I'm not sure it's wise to focus purely on the new shiny thing without getting the foundations right. I think our biggest issues are, as you say, strong rule of law, making sure that the, the institutions are really, really strong. But then also just getting the basics right, things like education and food, and as you say, roads and rails, like there's so much work to be done there. And that creates rich growth because it's growth that creates real jobs, it creates real skills, not tech-based only skills, which are also commodifiable. What can be automated can be replicated. And then you, again, coming back to what you're saying earlier, competing with everyone, selling essentially a commodity without much of a point of difference. And I think we do need to sort of separate those things. And perhaps from a policy perspective, we should be taking a slightly different route to what a much more already developed, very small European nation might want to be doing. I mean, it makes sense for Estonia to be the sort of the e-economy there. Maybe there's room for someone like a Botswana, for example, to be like the Estonia of Africa. But we shouldn't all be thinking that we should just be jumping onto the 4IR bandwagon. Of course, tech skills are important, but they're not, they're a starting point. They're definitely not an end. And there's a whole lot of real work that can be done below that. I'm not sure how much you agree with that there, but I'll, I'll give oh, I'm, you- I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you, bro. And, you know, with, the, with the fourth industrial revolution, I think pe people need to appreciate that it's not, you, you don't suspend one thing and then jump to another. Yeah. You can have it all, you know? So even as you have some, African economies adopting the knowledge economy, uh, they still need to industrialize. You know, we, we're not even talking about deindustrialization. Again, I think, you know, when, when, you, when, you, when you talk of industrialization, I think South Africa is maybe, maybe it, it really is the exception. It, it is yeah. not the typical African country. Not Africa. <laughs> no. So if you, if you look at most African economies, there's still this huge gap. This is why we talk about the $100 billion a year infrastructure deficit. There's still a huge gap, you know, in, in countries catching up. So you're not going to leapfrog that, that deficiency. You know, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not that simple. And the other thing is in, your, in, in investing in innovation, I think governments, again, governments shouldn't um, pull the handbrakes on anyone. If any, if a, you know, if entrepreneurs want to go in any direction, by all means, you know, encourage them. Absolutely. But for, from a public policy perspective, I think governments should focus on market creating innovations. They should pour in more incentives into market creating innovations. And what do I mean by this? Market creating innovations target non-consumption. And what that means is there is a large population in your economy that would wish to have the service but other, couldn't afford it, whether it's because the technology is beyond their reach or it's too expensive or, you know, they're cut off from, from accessing it or it's not accessible. So if you look at, um, uh, you know, innovations such as Hello, Hello Tractor, for example, in the agri-food sector, Hello Tractor is, well, maybe Jahil will forgive me for this. I don't think of them as the Uber of tractors. A lot of people call them that. I think of them as maximizing the, the use efficiency of a technology. What that means is if you own a tractor, 
you can only use it for so much. But could we expand the usability? You know, if more people could pay, say, a fraction uh, for the service. So you're turning um, rather rather than mechanization as an asset, a physical asset, it's now mechanization as a service. You know, so you're just paying for the time. You're paying for the use rather than owning this thing and the everything that comes with that maintenance. Uh, you know, the funding and the loans and financing and blah blah blah. Now, if if you can if you can expand innovation such as HelloTractor um, in, in mechanization or uh, in, you know, in, in the logistics uh, sector, such as lorry systems. Another famous son of South Africa, uh, Josh Sandler, um, came up with uh, lorry systems. I think they, they started out of Kenya, then they moved to Nigeria, and they're spreading across the continent now on improving the, the use of existing trucks. And just yeah. using big data and artificial intelligence to allocate uh, the flow of goods and services and ensuring that you know you're reducing the downtime of each truck same thing with hello tractor you're reducing the downtime of of these tractors you know if we can improve that what it does is it opens up commercial opportunities for other people now imagine uh, a farmer who Otherwise, you know, couldn't afford uh, a tractor to either prepare the land or harvest their their crops. You know, the amount of hours it would have taken them to either prepare the land, you know, hundreds of hours it would take them. You know, a couple of hours the tractors finish that. Now, if you if you can afford the service, what do you do with the extra time on your hands? It affords you time to do other things. Yeah. You know, now you can invest your time more efficiently. You know, time is your time becomes more, shall we say, more expensive, because if you're if you're focused in primary production with zero mechanization, your time is very cheap. That's that's just what it is. If you were to quantify that person's time, it's very cheap. But if you can reduce uh, the 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 man hours uh, or the hours spent um, at each point of the value chain, you're freeing up hours that can be invested in more productive aspects of the economy. Whether that's you know getting an education, um, kids no longer you know kids being able to go to school and not necessarily helping parents on the farms anymore, um, women getting education, which we have we have proven you know time and again that when women get educated there is a net benefit to the wider economy because the family benefits the children benefit so of course there's a multi generational impact you know when women get educated so. Yeah. There is that, you know, if, if, you, if, if you were sitting in the position of uh, government, you know, you're not saying, oh, we're going to stifle innovation in the private sector. But if you were going to pour investments into stimulating entrepreneurship, my um, recommendation would be to invest in those market creating innovations because more people get employed, more people get employed, you reduce inequality. Um, you get people more productive, and of course, people cycle out of this poverty. You really need to break the poverty cycle and create prosperity for people. Exactly. I love what you're saying there, because I think a lot of the time we get distracted when it comes to sort of investment and in new technologies or new industries in the things that make money, but don't actually solve real problems. And what you're talking about is using technology to solve real problems, to solve hard problems. And it takes more work, but that's when there's a gap for the public sector to get involved. So instead of funding easy places to make money, but without 
creating real change. I'm talking here about nobody needs another payments app. We know how to make payments in Africa. We solved that problem. You know, the only problem that you're solving by creating another one of those apps is how to make this particular guy rich, right? That's not a real problem to solve, but it's how to take that investment, particularly investment that comes through the public sector in ways that solve real problems on the ground and improve real people's lives. Like you're saying, it has to connect to the real world. If we just creating more accelerated businesses that increase the velocity of money without actually changing whose hands that money goes through and goes to or fixing any of those real problems, you end up with a very shallow, very unresilient economy. So the economy has to have that depth and we have to solve those real problems if we want a really strong foundation with which to build a much more sustainable, long run growth across the continent for all the different players in that marketplace, not just for people that are already in this sort of white collar tech space, which I think is unfortunately a difficult challenge to get across because that's where the easy wins are. There's lots of big dollar north zero 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 signs coming, coming behind that, but it's not actually changing things on the ground for a lot of people. And I've had a lot of those conversations for a while now about where our investment is going when it comes to investing in entrepreneurship, investing in, in sectors. So, so I love what you're saying there, but we have been talking for quite a long time. So I want to give you an opportunity to give some closing words, throw, throw any comments as to what I've said and leave people with something to think about. And if you could also tell people where to find you if they want to pick up this conversation or work with you in the future. Sure, 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 um, I think. To close, I, I, I do want to uh, give, give a shout out to the fintechs, uh, some fintechs anyway, um, because if you think about what some of them are doing, and let me be specific without being, you know, uh, to generalize and, and be broad and, and lose the point of the message. An example is Piggy Bank. It's a fintech um, out of Nigeria. Um, one of the things that it's, well, it's, it's doing a few things. I'll mention a couple. The first is it's creating uh, credit history for people who might not um, have um, access to uh, traditional financial services. That's one. And now with the credit with the credit history, of course, that opens you up to new um, financial products. With the credit history, you possibly can get more affordable loans because, of course, there's that huge risk perception in the lending markets, right? So in the credit market. If you, if you have a, a credit history, then it allows startups such as FarmDrive, uh, which is a Kenyan startup spreading across the continent as well, to then take uh, multiple data points, credit history, social media, et cetera, et cetera, to create a credit scoring system that they can sell to uh, financial, services, uh, financial service providers to bring down the cost of lending um, or the cost of borrowing, depending on what, what, what side of the market you're on. But if they can increase or improve affordability, then that's a market creating innovation. So yes, of course you are concentrating, maybe concentrating wealth in, in, in the hands of a few, but you're opening up markets for others. And the other thing uh, Piggy, Piggy Bank is doing um, through PiggyVest is they're now allowing more people to become investors in the agriculture value chain, right? So for example, with, 5,000 Naira, which is what, $10, about $10. With 5,000 Naira, you can now invest in a percent, a fraction of a percentage of a rice farm somewhere. This was, this was an opportunity that otherwise would not have been available to a huge percentage of the market. So you're creating a new investor class 
um, of, of people. And, and you're opening up opportunities for commercial returns because these are double, double digit uh, return on, on, on investments for these people. So I think the fintechs have their space, but you see they're built on <laughs> this legacy. They have to have a tie back. They have to have That's a tie right. back to a real problem. And I think I, I think I, I am a little bit uh, cynical there, but I just see a lot of copycat products, particularly in the South African startup thing. So they just do yeah, something that another company is already doing. I, let's encourage those. And let's that's, encourage that's, that's those fine. because we're going to see. It's it's as, as as fire refines gold. You know, as fire refines gold, the market will refine these ideas, and then the best ideas will will be sustained. Right. So maybe the more copycats we see. The, the more innovative the fintech space will become and it won't be a oh, proliferation yeah. that would be you know a a, an aggregation but we already seen that that explosion there so i would just like to see more people solving some of the other problems too because it's it's yes. easy to start at the, at the sort of the the white collar tech layer right that you don't get your hands dirty yes. And, yes and my challenge would be you got to kind of link those two together we can't have everyone yes. working on the same problem as much as competition's great i mean yes. <laughs> but there yes, are a whole yes. lot of other pieces of this pie that that we I haven't agree. tapped into and the last mm -hmm. thing we want is for you know an, an american or a, or a european country to come and come and actually solve that problem for us because we're too yeah. busy plowing sort of public sector development r d money into solving problems that you know a lot of other people are already working on i think it's more of a that's more of a policy challenge for me as to where we are directing our public mm -hmm. sector money by all means if you're an entrepreneur go do whatever you want to do and good luck to yes. you do it better than yes. the next guy win that's how the market yes. works Exactly. But I think that the challenge is for more towards policymakers as to mm -hmm. that's that's when you're sort of interfering with the market. But where are you putting that? Where are you directing those very scarce resources from very constrained economies to get that biggest return for the most amount of people? And there's a huge distinction there between public sector investment and private sector entrepreneurship, yep. which should be encouraged to go ahead and go crazy as much as they they, yep. they want to do. Go yep. do what you want to do. That's what we want. Yep. I think two, two messages to, to close, two messages for, for governments as you've said is, first is understand we're in a globally competitive space. You're competing with the rest of the world. Um, as a country, you need to ensure that, as you've said, uh, public resources are stimulating the real economy. So I would say if you were a government and you, you, you were um, short of ideas, go and identify where the opportunities are for investing in market creating innovations invest in creating a new class of entrepreneurs, both at the micro, small, and medium size. That's where you really want the growth. Um, they're the ones who need uh, the support. They're the ones who are most vulnerable. Um, the, other, the other thing for, for governments is be open to changing your mind. You know, don't be, don't be so hard set and dogmatic about or the righteousness of one idea. You know, be open to changing your minds because new information comes up, new technologies arise, new ideas uh, can be proposed. And in public policy, understand there's no silver bullet. You have options. With each option will come trade-offs. Live with the trade-off. In living with the trade-off, that's politics because politics is selling the trade-offs to people. You know, it's not telling people, you know, you've got this cure-all. You've got this elixir that will cure all ills with no negative impact. No. Politics is managing the downside and amplifying the upside of, of whatever option um, or course of action you take. So be better politicians and I would say be more entrepreneurial in how you sell your ideas to your electorate, but also how you ensure that your ideas work. You have four to five years in a political cycle, make it work. Uh, for entrepreneurs, it's 
it's it's it's it is good to compete. So don't don't back down from uh, from from competing, whether within the country, with the, around the world, because there is there is that innovation that comes through competition, you know, and there is resilience that comes from that. You become more anti fragile um, because there's a hardness hardening that comes uh, from being robust and resilient and knowing that your idea, you know, competes with the very best from around the world, and do more to lobby your governments to support entrepreneurs. You should be, you know, you should be knocking on doors of your governments, of your politicians to support entrepreneurs. And for civil society, acquire as much information as you can because you need to lobby governments and keep them honest. Keep governments honest to keep, you know, fulfill their campaign promises, to focus on the bigger goals and also uh, on private sector to hold uh, values that are, you know, uh, shall we say in alignment with what, what promotes our shared humanity, like getting companies or entrepreneurs uh, to focus on more pro-environmental strategies and decisions, for example, pressure on a lot of financial institutional investors to divest from fossil fuel, uh, from the fossil fuel sector, for example. You know, that's because of sustained campaigning from civil society. We can do that. You know, we need um, our economies to be more equal. Um, you know, you need to promote equity and equality um, and fairness. Governments need to promote the rule of law, enforce contracts, and hopefully, you know, these are the these these, these provide the building blocks for an economic economically prosperous and vibrant Africa. That's a great way to end it. Uh, where can people find you? That was that was the, the only other. Yes. Thing. Well, 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 you can find if you me. You want I to be found. <laughs> <laughs> I can be found. Well, I mean, you can you can on social media. I'm there, Debbie Siaraba. Um, you find me on on, on social media. Um, Malabo Montpellier panel, of course, is our website. Um, you can also look 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 that up. Um, I don't know if if this is going to be written um, on the, on the website, but those would be the two primary ways. Uh, to to get in touch, and I'd be I'd be keen, and of course you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I'd be I'd be keen to have conversations with people, whether you know it's your your government, uh, you're an entrepreneur thinking through an idea, uh, civil society thinking through uh, ideas on how you um, synthesize information to uh, improve your communication and advocacy strategies. Um, I want to see a prosperous Africa, and I'm going to do everything I can, you know, uh, to support anyone. Uh, who's aligned uh, on, on this on this vision and mission. Thank you very much. Thanks, Bromwood. Thanks for having me.